On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. R.T. Mullins about Craig Carter's recent interview with Credo Magazine. We cover topics like, what are the metaphysics of Nicaea? Do they have robust metaphysical implications? Uh, What is theistic personalism, theistic mutualism, open theism, panentheism, relational theology? And what do we make uh, of the claim that the alternatives to classical theism must deny creation out of nothing? We talk about this and more on this upcoming episode. And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we are bringing back our friend, Dr. R.T. Mullins, to talk about a particular issue that came out in Credo Magazine, which I think is run by Matthew Barrett over at Midwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. So I don't read this all the time. I've read some stuff in here before, and it's been you know interesting, and it's been helpful for what it is. But there was some interesting, I guess, more flamboyant stuff recently from... Uh, our friend who we've had on here before, Dr. Craig Carter, who said some things that I think uh, got Dr. Mullins a little riled up. And I, I don't remember how it all worked out. We were Twitter direct messaging or something about it and thought it would be fun and useful to talk over some of the things he said in here on an episode. Because I know a lot of our listeners, I think, like Craig Carter. For whatever reason, he's become like a lightning rod recently. Because, um, I mean, I think he's just, you know, he says what he thinks. There, so, some academics are, are more like even keel and just, you know, try to please everybody. He he doesn't care. He says what he says, he, what he thinks. Uh, so, I mean, I guess you mad respect for that. You know, he's, he's not trying to hide what he thinks. Uh, so I think we want to talk about that. And it's especially relevant because I do think there is some sort of like neoclassical revival of classical theism that seems to me from the outside looking in. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's the outside looking in. I don't know if I'm part of that or not because I'm a classical theist. But it seems that there's a lot of like bark, but little bite when you actually dig down into what they actually believe. They're really good at like, you know, saying, well, okay, this classical tradition, you know, all these fathers, Augustine, and there's a straight line between Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, who is like, you know, the chief pinnacle or whatever. But there's not a lot of like, I actually know what Thomas said. I've I've read this read the summa or at least part of it or I've read a lot of Augustine. It's kind of surface level. Anyway, that's a big introduction. So, uh, Dr. Mullins, why don't you remind us who you are, and then maybe we can just jump into to the stuff that we wanted to discuss. Right. So, as I mentioned on the show last time, uh, I'm a philosophical theologian living in Scotland, uh, and so I published a book on God and Time uh, several years ago through Oxford University Press, and then my new book. Uh, God and Emotions will be coming out in August through Cambridge University Press. Awesome! I th- we just we just released today our monthly reviews and resources, and we mentioned that one in there. So I'm looking nice. forward to reading that myself. So maybe just to get started, in let's see, what's the title of this article? I'm going to link to it in the show notes so you guys can find it. So he's got like an interview called "Contemplating God with the Great Tradition." an interview with Craig Carter, which I think is probably the most like the spiciest takes that he's got in here that we'll be referencing. So maybe we start with just saying, you know, he makes several claims in there. 
and he's talking a lot about like the metaphysical constraints of Nicene Orthodoxy. What would you say are the metaphysical constraints of Nicene Orthodoxy? Because I think he has a very uh, like it's going to be packaged in Thomistic Reformed Orthodox language. And if you go outside of using Actus Puris or whatever it may be, you are leaving Nicene Orthodoxy or you're inconsistent with it, if that makes sense. Right. And so there's this question now, like, of like, do we need this sort of Thomistic understanding in order to have like Nicene metaphysics? And I want to say no, like you don't. And it's a very simple reason. Like first, like Thomistic metaphysics just didn't exist until until like the 1200s when Aquinas was writing. And that would be really bad, you know, if you're trying to have to, if you have to affirm Thomistic metaphysics and you have to, in order to affirm Nicene Orthodoxy, because the Nicene Creed is written, you know, like 325. So it's like a thousand year difference between uh, the two. So like that would be pretty terrible because that would mean that nobody at the Council of Nicaea could affirm Nicaea if you have to affirm like Thomistic metaphysics. Uh, now there's like a, like some other reasons here though, why I think you can't have this sort of view. And it's because I don't think Nicaea actually has a metaphysical framework. So like the Nicene Creed, like it was, like I mentioned a second ago, it was developed originally in 325, but then they had to add to it because they forgot to mention the Holy Spirit and a few other things. So, ooh, so in 381, you know, they, they decided like, okay, let's have another council. Let's kind of work this out again, but they don't have like a developed metaphysical system at any of this. So when you're when you're looking at Nicaea in 325, like they don't even have their language sorted out. Like they have to develop new words like homoousius and begotten in order to distinguish themselves from like the so-called Arian party. And even then, like several members of the council, they just dropped the language of homoousius like shortly after the council. And then some of the people in the council, like Marcellus of Ancyra, like they're they're actually modalists or like we might call like Sibelians, so they're accused of heresy. And they're like on the council and they're affirming supposedly like the Nicene ideas. And then on top of that, uh, someone like uh, Francis Young, like a church historian like Francis Young, is going to point out that Athanasius does not even adopt the language of Homoousius until around 350. So that's 25 years after the Council of Nicaea. And at that point in time, Athanasius is trying to like convince other political parties that explicitly deny Homoousius to join forces with him because he's trying to get out of exile. So there's a lot of other stuff going on here that just simply isn't like this well-worked out metaphysics because they don't even have their own language worked out. So something that if if you guys, um, I think some of you might be familiar with Stephen Holmes' book, The Quest for the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hey, yeah, it's a really great history. So I would, everybody listening, I'd recommend you you check it out. Something that Stephen Holmes keeps mentioning several times throughout his book is that the Council of Nicaea is using terms in an incohate way, which just means they don't even really know what they're saying. And so, so Holmes mentions this multiple times when he's talking about like the language of homoousius or person or nature, all of this stuff. And he's just like, they don't really know what they're saying. And so the suggestion that you'd have this worked out metaphysic there, well, it doesn't seem to stack up with what the people, them, like the historians are actually saying or what's going on there. And then I like, kind of add on top of that, like one final thought here is when you fast forward to something like the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where like Christology is being debated, like they have all these different debates going on about what does nature mean? Yeah. And they don't even have, so they don't even have like agreement on what t terms like nature or person even mean at this point. And, and so J.L. Prestige, who's another church historian, he says, when you look at Chalcedon, he says they left things incredibly undefined. They offered no rationalization for their position whatsoever. And then this ambiguity led to further church councils. So the suggestion that we've got this well-worked out metaphysics at Nicaea that's being like passed on throughout the church tradition, it just does not follow the historical facts. 
Yeah, so it's I guess it's messier than oh. this like super clean, like cut, like exact pristine metaphysical system that we can just drop on here. Because mm-hmm. I think pretty much at most every Christian wants to affirm what's in Nicaea uh, and what's in Chalcedon and what's in all these other ecumenical councils. But it's not even when I think anybody you can have a Thomistic metaphysic. I mean, I think I'm. Uh, open to it. I don't think I'm like married to it in any way. I, I like some things. I don't like other things. But even if you had that, it seems like you have to come to it and realize this is not like robust metaphysical system. Mm-hmm. But it seems like what Carter's claim is, because I mean, I've seen him mm-hmm. online enough for him to respond to different people who who bring up questions. And I've brought up questions in, in my past to him. He's going to say, well, it, it's not that they have this Thomistic metaphysics scheme, maybe. Maybe he's just going to say they had a united metaphysical scheme that was denying five antis that he's getting from Lloyd Gerson, I think, because that's who he quotes several times in his books and his other works, which basically are he's saying everybody who affirmed Nicaea is an anti-nominalist, is an anti-materialist is anti-mechanism, is anti-relativist, and is anti-skepticism. So he's saying, well, there is a developed metaphysical scheme. It's this. So, and, and I think Ed Fazer has also mentioned this before, and he's, you know, cheered it on, which it is what it is, you know, whatever. I've got my own Christian Platonist issues that we've we've rehashed with him in the past, and maybe I, I've got plans to write some stuff on it, but maybe you can talk to that. Like, mm-hmm. is that a robust metaphysical scheme that everybody at Nicaea would have to affirm? Is that sufficient enough to get us to Thomas, to get us beyond? I I guess I would find the suggestion really odd for at least three reasons. So I guess the first one is that not all of these antis are actually metaphysical positions because like anti-skepticism, that's an epistemic position, not a metaphysical position. And then second, like anti-materialism, that's consistent with a ton of different metaphysical views, some of which I think are, they're just antithetical to the very idea of material objects existing. So, you know, like that, so like, I'm, so it's a wide range of stuff here. And so, so I don't think this anti, you know, these antis are really conducive to the idea of like a well-developed metaphysic since it's going to be consistent with lots of different positions. But like the main reason I find the suggestion odd is because the Council of Nicaea simply doesn't discuss these issues. I mean, the debates at Nicaea and Constantinople, they're primarily about issues related to the Trinity and the Incarnation, and they're not taking a stand on any of these antis. Because like, if we're going to be this anti, like, sort of anachronistic about what's going on at Nicaea, like, we might as well just say, like, you know, Nicaea's metaphysics is anti-Trump and pro-Wendy's. Because, I mean, like, you know, if Nicaea had enough foresight to adopt Thomistic metaphysics, like hundreds of years before Aquinas was born, then we should be able to say they had enough foresight to to know that, like, Wendy's has the best cheeseburgers, right? <laughs> So, I mean, I'm yeah. for spicy chicken, but well, uh, it's a good, yeah, they get the spicy chicken, it's great. And so, but you know, Nicaea didn't debate those things, so I don't know why we should really say this is kind of what it's the heart of these, these actual debates. But I think there's something kind of deeper going on here, which is this idea that, like, behind the so- idea of like so called metaphysics of Nicaea, as I see it, it's an attempt to get a particular philosophical position to serve as the rule for how we interpret scripture. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to let something other than scripture serve as the ultimate authority for theology. So it's basically just taking the starting assumption that a particular interpretation of a particular philosophical school of thought about the nature of God and the universe, like that's the ultimate norm for theology. But like John Peckham, like as he points out, he says, like, this has got to be mistaken 
because it does not let scripture serve as the ultimate norm or source for, for Christian theology, which is normally what we take it to be. And in, in Peckham's view, and in mine as well, like we have to let the Bible really serve as the ultimate authority of theology. And contrary to, I think, like this methodology from Carter and others, I, I don't think we can just take our own preferred metaphysical views and just kind of put them on scripture. And when I think when you dig a bit deeper into this idea, like there's going to be some other worries because like, I think when you look at what some actual people in the tradition say, they seem to be saying something a bit different. So here's a quote from uh, Gregory of Nyssa. So he says, we make the holy scriptures the rule and measure of every tenet. We will adopt as the guide of our reasoning, the scriptures. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire. And so someone like Peckham is going to point out, if you really want to be like close to what these Nicene fathers are, are saying is the ultimate authority, you can't say it's this Nicene metaphysic, whatever that is. They themselves thought it was scripture. And if you want to go Baptist for a minute, since we're on a Baptist show, uh, you know, let's look at a like a Reformed Baptist theologian named Augustus Strong. So like Strong's going to say the ultimate authority for theology is Jesus Christ and that scripture gets its authority derivatively from Christ. And so according to Strong, he's like, we must remember that creeds are historical statements of what the church has believed, not infallible prescriptions of what the church must believe. And so in Strong's view, if a creed or a tradition goes against the clear gospel teaching, then he's going to say, you have to follow the gospel instead. So this idea of a Nicene metaphysic, I think it's doing something else. It's trying to create a new ultimate norm for theology instead of scripture. So that's interesting because it, it seems like I think if I asked Greg Carter or I asked others, hey, are you, are you doing this? They would say no. Right. They'd say, no, scripture still still the norming norm. What I'm using here is consistent with scripture and is, I guess, uh, a necessary implication of scripture. So how how would you respond to that? Would you just have to say, well, look, the way you're using these sources to me makes it look like you're doing this? Um, I know I really, yeah. I mean, John Peckham, uh, in his, one of his forthcoming books comes down pretty hard in this saying like, this is really what they're up to. They're really placing a particular understanding of a particular tradition and saying, this is how we have to look at scripture from through this lens. Uh, and I, I think I can kind of see it in some other thinkers. So when I was on the show last time with you guys, we talked about James Dozel and we talked about the fact that his book on the doctrine of God doesn't engage with any biblical scholarship. And he says, biblical studies is just not the right place to start. For thinking about God. And I'm like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, because biblical studies treats God like a historical figure as a being with like that's in time. And I'm like, right, because that's how the Bible treats God. So if we have to start with just Thomistic metaphysics, the way we're reading scripture is going to be very different than the way like a biblical studies approach is going to look at scripture. Yeah. So I think yeah. we're really are looking at competing authorities. Okay. Because I mean, it just, it, it does seem challenging to me because it, there is a sense, I think, where you have to start with something just because, I mean, it would take everybody forever oh, yeah. to peel back. And, and it's truly impossible to peel back all of our, you know, metaphysical presuppositions and everything that goes into it. Right. Yeah. So I'm wondering, as long as somebody like Craig Carter or whoever is open and honest about their metaphysical commitments and saying, I am taking this, I am placing this here. You know, I'm just assuming this is true for the sake of my own the theologizing. Is that OK? Yeah, because we all do it. I mean, it, it would be silly not to. So I think it is more intellectually honest to say, I've got these metaphysical assumptions. These are the ones I'm bringing to the table. But then someone like Keith Ward is going to say, right, all these debates about doctrine of God and theology. Scripture is really not playing any role here. They're almost always debates about metaphysics. And so if that's the game we're playing, that's fine. Let's just be honest about it. 
Yeah, I think I, I read the four views on impassibility. And I know James Dolzell's chapter is heavily like, you know, lift and land. Here we go. Here's I'm going to drop, you know, the Thomistic metaphysical scheme in here and just run with it. But it seems like he is somewhat honest about that and just saying, look, mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to take this for granted. Uh, I'm not going to defend it. I'm just going to assume it's true for the sake of argument, which in a four views book, I don't know how beneficial that is because you're trying to convince people who are not convinced of your position, which I don't think they're going to be willing to accept that assumption. So I, right. it seems like you need to argue for that. But just in the, in, in on practice, it seems like that's okay to do, at least from my vantage point, mm-hmm. as long as you're honest and know, know what you're doing and not just assuming that that is biblical or whatever. Um, you, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. <laughs> now that I'm saying, assuming it's biblical. So what I think, as I think about it, we have a metaphysical scheme. It's mm-hmm. okay in my mind to just be honest and say, look, I'm not going to do all the background work. I'm just, I've already done exegetical work in the past. So because of that, I'm going to assume this is what the Bible teaches and I'm just going to run with it. I'm not saying that it's like um, insulated from critique of scripture. So maybe you could show me that somewhere else type of thing, but I'm just going to assume it is scriptural here. That seems okay to me to run with a metaphysic, a robust metaphysical scheme if you're doing it in that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Because, but it's difficult to develop a robust metaphysical scheme in the first place um, because most positions that most of us hold are consistent with lots of different metaphysical schemes. That Hardly anybody's sense. got a well-worked out metaphysical view, unless you're like Leibniz, like, you know, the rest of us, we're just we're just grabbing like random things and be like, yeah, I'll believe that in my metaphysics. Yeah, no, that's true. It seems like the more the more I read and study and learn, the more I'm like, man, I b- literally believe like 15 things. 15,000 things that are inconsistent with each other. (laughs) Right. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so I think that's a fairly good introduction to the topic. We've got some more spicy stuff. Brandon, did you want to ask something before we jump on? No, we we can just move on on to, you know, modern metaphysics. So you you mentioned a few minutes ago that, um, that Nicaea doesn't have anything that we could coherently refer to as a metaphysical framework. Um, so how would you respond to the claim that that modern metaphysics is is at odds with Nicaea? Yeah, because I've seen yeah. that charge a lot where it's like yeah. anything that's after, I guess, enlightenment or after is completely at odds with patristic yeah. thought, you know, medieval thought, all of that. Right, because I love where the dividing line is. The dividing line is always like the end of the scholastic era, unless you don't like SCOTUS, then it's like, well you know, right before SCOTUS, that's where the line is. Uh, and so you, you you pick your tradition how you want it. Um, but do I think like contemporary views are at odds with Nicaea? Not as far as I can tell. Uh, and so for kind of like, I guess, like two reasons here. So first, like in contemporary philosophy, there's like so many different metaphysical systems and ideas. So there's no such thing as like the modern metaphysics, because there's, I mean, there's, yeah, there's just a million different people debating lots of different issues today. And then second, as I've already mentioned before, like I, like I just do not believe that Nicaea has a well-worked-out metaphysic. So what Nicaea does is they give us a set of claims that, like, as Christian theologians, we're trying to understand. And I think every generation has to use whatever philosophical tools they have and metaphysical models they have to try to make sense of these claims. So I think there's about five claims that you can really kind of distill out of Nicaea that are important for something like, say, like the Trinity. So the first one is going to be like there's three persons, there's three divine persons. And then the second claim is these divine persons are not numerically identical to each other. And the third one is this homoousius doctrine, which is that they all share the divine essence. But that's, I mean, just really underdeveloped. It's not clear what that means. 
And the fourth claim is like monotheism of some sort, that the divine persons are related in some kind of way, such as there's only one God and not three gods. But again, it's what is that way? Ooh, you know, I don't know. And then the fifth claim is there's some kind of doctrine of processions that the divine persons are distinguished and related by causal relations, like the father causes the son to exist. And so those are like kind of the big sort of claims you get from Nicaea. And then there's lots of different ways you could try to flesh that out. And so like I mentioned before, like Nicaea and Constantinople, they do not define terms like person, nature, or essence. And then not even the Council of Chalcedon has these definitions figured out. So we are really left in our own way here with fear and trembling to try to work out how do we make sense of these ideas. So you can take whatever you want. You can take some Aristotelian ideas, rationalism, idealism, Neoplatonism, you know, contemporary analytic stuff. You can do some like medieval scholasticism. I think you can do whatever you want trying to work out how do I make sense of these five claims. Yeah, that makes sense. So one thing that Carter said in in this piece, or he was talking about, he, he seems, and it really seems like a lot of a lot of people who are in that circle or whatever. I think of James Dolezal as a, as an example. I mean, I like James. I like. Mm-hmm. I think he's doing a lot of helpful work. I think personally, I like it when people in different tribes are doing rigorous, clear, challenging work. Uh, but at the same time, I think guys like Craig Carter and James Dolzel have talked about this idea of theistic personalism or theistic mutualism um, and kind of have lo- lumped in, I guess, open theism, panentheism, and any relational theology into this theistic personalistic term bucket. And it's all opposed to classical theism. So you have classical theism on one side and everything else is this theistic mutualism or theistic personalism. And it seems like a lot of people have criticized this because that seems overly simplistic. Um, so maybe before, before we get to discussing the, the inner workings of those, Do you think these labels like theistic personalism are helpful, accurate, representative, or even just pragmatically useful in any way besides rhetorical flourish and, you know, throwing red meat to your own crowd? Right. I I personally think that these are really unhelpful terms. Uh, And I think that if when I see people use the term theistic personalism, I instantly form the belief that they are deeply unfamiliar with the actual literature on rival models of God. Uh, because like hardly anyone uses these terms, theistic personalism outside of like the internet. So you've got like, you know, like Edward Fazer, David Bentley Hart, Stephen Long, like they'll use these terms, but the overwhelming majority of work on models of God never use this term because it's just too coarse grain to capture anything. So instead, like everyone's talking about these much more well-defined views like modified or neoclassical theism, open theism, panentheism. I mean, there's whole books written on just each of these things. And I don't find books written on theistic personalism, whatever that is. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I just, I think it's really unhelpful. So, to, I guess I'll give an example here. So, John Peckham has this uh, recent introduction to the doctrine of God, and so he gives a survey of some different models of God here. But he has a one single mention of theistic personalism, and it's buried in a footnote. And, and Peckham says he's not going to use that term to classify people like William Lane Craig uh, or whoever, because he's like, this term's always a pejorative. So like, why, why would I use it? And, and I, and I just completely agree. Like, I just, I just think it's, I think it's very coarse grain because when I look at some of these different models, like that are kind of lumped into this, you've got really wildly different views. So just to give t- 
two examples, consider someone like Bruce Ware uh, and then William Hasker. It's like Bruce Ware is not a classical theist because he denies strong immutability and he denies like strong impassibility. But Ware is going to say that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. And so if you kind of want to try to put him in the same category as someone like William Hasker, who's an open theist who denies that God knows the future, I then I would just lose any grasp I have of saying like they affirm the same model of God. Like how? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Surely that can't be right, especially since Bruce Ware has written several books against views like William Hasker. Exactly right, because he's written at least three books, I think, you know, against open theism. So to say, well, but they have the same view, then I'd be like, you're not paying attention. You're you don't know what you're talking about. Something's something's gone wrong here. Yeah, no, that's that's. I think that's right. I mean, Bruce Ware's a Calvinist. Bruce Ware, you know, Bruce Ware's got pretty much every like he checks all these like reform box marks except for a couple mm-hmm. uh and to to make him i guess in the same category as william hasker it does seem very unhelpful mm-hmm. uh academically you know dishonest i i don't know what you want to say uh it doesn't seem useful it just so seems I'm sloppy with, to me yeah i'm with you on that i i think if 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 we want to engage you know, different viewpoints, like say Bruce Ware or William Hasker, it seems better that we would use fine grain, like here's what he actually thinks, mm-hmm. um, rather than just saying, well, you know, his view just makes God, you know, willy nilly, super personal best friend, you know, he's like my right. lap dog type of thing or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, because anyway, that's not so, going to fit either of you. Because, like, I mean, if you're a Calvinist, you definitely don't want to say things like that. And yeah. then Hask, and then Hasker, I mean, he really thinks God's got a pretty like hands-off approach to most things th- as he's providentially governing the world. And so it's just not, I don't know. It's not the sort of things we attack in Sunday school, I guess. <laughs> uh, that's good. So this quote here that I'm going to mention that I want to quote in full, I think is the centerpiece that got everybody like, wow, wh- why would you say that? That is like wildly in- inaccurate. And maybe, you know, Craig Carter, we, we, did, a, we did an episode on this Christian Platonism before and, and he got wind of it and he came on the show and talked about it. So maybe we end up doing an episode with him where he's going through these claims, explaining them. Uh, but for now, I just want to quote this and I, I think it's a little crazy. So I, he basically says, every alternative to classical theism denies creation out of nothing. I think that is wildly implausible. So I'm going to offer this direct quote. So if you're listening and you're thinking, no way he says that. Yes, he does. Let, let me let me quote it to you. He says this, quote, all forms of relational theism from process theology to dynamic panentheism to open theism to theistic personalism to ecofeminism all deny creation ex nihilo. The fact that many evangelical Old Testament scholars are denying that Genesis 1 teaches creation ex nihilo should set off alarm bells. It is no wonder evangelical theologians are failing to uphold the Nicene doctrine of God if they buy into this kind of biblical interpretation. These evangelical Old Testament scholars are retracing the steps of the 19th century German higher critics as they revise biblical interpretation on the basis of philosophical naturalism. In fact, one could say that philosophical naturalism just is the denial of creation. Now, end quote. There is a lot going on yeah. in that. Uh, I think we've touched on some of that stuff already. So maybe we just touch on the hot button of, if you're not a classical theist, can you affirm creation out of nothing? I want to say, yeah. And I can give you lots of examples of this. So Because I think this claim is just demonstrably false. So let's just keep it Baptist for a moment here. 
So, you know, like consider two different Baptist theologians who fall under this like really nebulous category of theistic personalism. So we got Bruce Ware and William Lane Craig. So imagine like walking up to Bruce Ware and accusing him of denying creation ex nihilo. Like, I, d I just don't imagine that going down very well. Or imagine walking up to like William Lane Craig and saying that he denies creation ex nihilo. Like, so like, again, like imagine walking up to William Lane Craig, the author of the book Creation Out of Nothing, and telling him that he denies the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Like that's like this. I just think this claim from Carter cannot be taken seriously. But, you know, let's put the Baptist to the side for a moment here and give a couple other examples. So open theism. So the open theists, like the, there's various authors that contributed to this 1994 book called The Openness of God. And in that book, they all explicitly affirm the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. So William Hasker, Clark Pennock, John Sanders, Richard Rice, and then lots of other open theists since then, they all explicitly affirm and defend the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. And in fact, a bunch of their arguments for open theism are dependent upon the doctrine of creation ex, uh, like ex nihilo. But then let's, you know, but Carter also lumped in there some panentheists. And this is going to be really tricky because I, I, I've done a lot of work on panentheism some panentheists like uh, Philip Clayton, uh, he's like, who's one of the kind of the biggest living panentheists today. Clayton explicitly affirms creation ex nihilo. Whereas others like Benedict Gerke, they say that panentheism ought to deny creation ex nihilo. And then when it comes to like process theism, ecofeminism, and then this newer term relational theology or relational theism that like my friend Tom Ward is working on, like these views, they are usually pretty explicit that they are in fact denying creation ex nihilo. So at least that part of like Carter's comment, I think is correct. But again, just kind of notice how it's, how impractical and plausible it is to lump all of these views together because they just wouldn't make sense of all the different uh, disagreements they have. Yeah. So, I mean, as I think about claims like this, it seems to me at least when, when you make overly bombastic claims like this that are not accurate, you end up actually hurting your cause if, because a lot of people, you know, I, you you can find it on social media. It seems like everywhere they're like deconversion stories where, you know, they, they learned about some stuff and like youth group or whatever. And then they go off and they find out that the claims that they heard are like wildly incorrect or implausible or just like this. It seems like just not very like fine grained in any way. So it's true about some it's false about others. So they go, they, maybe they read uh, Bruce Ware and they're like, he doesn't deny creation out of nothing. Like, so if, if he's, wrong about this where else is he wrong and then it leads you down the step of like well if you can't be accurate about this one thing i can't trust you for anything else mm. so it seems for me just from a practical standpoint you wouldn't want to make claims like this just because you don't want to show yourself as untrustworthy <laughs> as, a, as a guide for truth brandon you were going to say something yeah so i jordan you're usually the one who tries to be charitable so i'll i'll put that hat on here yeah um, go for it <laughs> so and I, I'll, I'll admit the quote doesn't look good, but but let's say we we ask him and he says, well, what I'm really getting at is um, if you hold one of these positions, then you can't consistently affirm uh, creation from nothing. Okay. No, no. You're right. And I think that's probably what he is trying to say. I'll give yeah, you that. I think, I think that's what. Yeah. And I think he as maybe he tends to do sometimes he his language gets a, a, a little bit ahead of him and he makes a bigger claim with his words than he's actually trying to. But I think he would just say that, you know, if you deny simplicity and, and, and doctrines like that, then, well, then, you know, you're going to be left with a God who's um, not creating out of nothing because there are these, you know, metaphysical parts that are already there and all this stuff. I, I think he would probably say that, but um, 
I, I just don't know. Maybe we just need to have him on here to 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 respond to this, but because I do think that would be fair if we're gonna, mm-hmm. um, you know, have this discussion. Maybe he can come on. But I, I so I just wanted to offer that reinterpretation of his quote that maybe no, that's no, that's what he's fair. trying to say. Yeah. No, I thought about that because I looked at this quote a long time before I tried to figure out what was going on here. But when I look at the context, I mean, he, first he explicitly says all deny creation ex nihilo. And then he goes on to say there are scholars who are denying that Genesis one teaches creation ex nihilo. Uh, and he's, and he's like, you know, evangelicals are failing to uphold, you know, these things. So I'm like, this looks like he's saying they're explicitly denying. Well, I think the second claim, I think he is saying that they're Mm -hmm. explicitly denying it. I think, and again, I I don't want to put mm-hmm. work because maybe he is just flat out just, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. We'll have to see how the like his new book comes out, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to send us a copy of that. So I need to remind him. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, I was going to say, because it does, he lumps, I think, all of us into this philosophical naturalism, which for him, I think it's the big boogeyman that's like the evil bad guy that's trying to ruin everybody's Christian faith and mm-hmm. take the gospel from us all. Uh, and you know, German higher critics, you know, 19th century, maybe that's true of them, but I don't think that is the underlying motivation for somebody like, you know, we brought up Bruce Ware before. I don't think he's a philosophical naturalist. I don't think he's like pretty weird if he was, you know, (laughs) I don't think he's beholden to 19th century German higher critics. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's genuinely trying to just, if you read his stuff, he's genuinely trying to find, follow the Bible. And I get, and I get, you know, people who are genuinely trying to follow the Bible can wind up in absolute left field or right field or wherever. Mm-hmm. But there's a big difference between where guys like Bruce Ware or William Hasker are and where philosophical naturalists are right. uh, on the spectrum, at least in, in my view anyway. So another, another point he makes in this article, we can maybe return to this creation out of nothing if we want, but I, I want to get to this. Carter and a lot of other contemporary classical theists, I, I think I've seen uh, Scott Oliphant make a similar claim in his book that has now been committed to the flames. Uh, God with us. Uh, you know, I'm not going to rehash that whole debate, sure. <laughs> but they make these, cl- they r- raise, I guess, these objections to non-classical theism or non-classical views of God. And let's see what Carter says for relational theism essentially what he calls god is a person like us only bigger wiser and older and i see that all over the place where any version that's not classical is just bringing god down to my level remaking him in my own image uh making him like superhuman version of me Uh, now i have seen i think Josh, I think it's Hoffman and Rosencrantz. Mm-hmm. They have an old book on divine attributes from like yeah. the 80s or 90s. And they pretty much say, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm making God Superman. But <laughs> I, forgot about I that. don't know anyone else who's really doing that. So what do you make of that objection? Is that legitimate for all versions that are not classical v- versions of God? Are they really trying to, you know, package God up in this like little miniature, it's me, but not me ver- thing? Right. I, as far as I can tell, I think this is just a caricature. And I, I really honestly think it just has no place in like rational theological discourse. 
So typically when I like it's assumed in this complaint that like only classical theism can affirm something like a doctrine of analogy. So God's not exactly like us. We can't speak about God in you know this univocal way, but everybody else, they're speaking about God in this univocal way. Uh, well, if you actually read like the major proponents of open theism, for instance, those guys love analogy and metaphor. Like, I mean, Hasker is all about univocity, but like John Sanders, Richard Rice, they're really explicit that all our language about God is analogical. And then I was recently chatting with uh, Curtis Holton, who's got a, a really good book on defending open theism recently. Uh, and, and Curtis was teasing me because he said something like, Ryan, like, I know you're going to tell me to cut out all these metaphors because you know, <laughs> he knows I just can't stand all, all the metaphors. And it's, it's true. Like these guys, like they really do. They're like really honestly affirm analogy and metaphorical language about God. And then when I look at like panentheists, I mean, sometimes it's impossible me for to, to find like a non-metaphorical and a non-analogical statement from panentheists. So I think this idea that like only classical theists are affirming something like analogy, like that's just, I think it's just false from the start because lots of people are doing this. And then also you've got like a classical theist like John Duns Scotus who affirms univocity. And then also all the classical theists before Aquinas, like, because they like, you know, the doctrine of analogy didn't exist until Aquinas. So, you know, details, but whatever. But let's, <laughs> let's look at some of those, uh, you know, some of these other claims here. Like, is God just like bigger than us? Um well, I I don't think that he's just bigger than us because like so someone like a panentheist like Benedict Gerke, he's going to say that all models of God, like all of them, they have to start with a claim that God is a necessarily existent being who is the sole cause of all contingent reality. He thinks that's just the essential idea of the concept of God. And then Gerke wants to go like, well, you know, but panentheism is the only one that really can satisfy that condition. Um, so Benny's definitely not thinking that this is just a bigger God than us. So, so I, I think that's weird, but then bigger in what sense though? Like bigger than like in like size or shape or mass? Like, I mean, other than pantheism, these views don't really seem to think God's material object. So that seems out. And even Paul Helm makes fun of this sort of objection because and Paul Helm's a classical theist because Paul Helm's like, it's not like God has like a side. It's that he does exist alongside of the universe. So, you know, what are you, what are you going on about? But if you want to say bigger in power, then I'm like, well, sure. But every model of God's going to say that. God's bigger in terms of power and wisdom. So I don't know. Um, older, though? Maybe. Um, if you think God's timeless, then you, you know, you're going to say God doesn't have an age, so he's not really older. But if you think God's temporal, which you, know, you've got, you guys know I do, I don't really know if I want to say how old God is because God doesn't have a birthday. So like, I don't, know, I don't know how old he is. And then before the universe... Like, I mean, William Lane Craig wants to say God was timeless sans creation, yeah, yeah. so without the universe. I don't know what that means, but I want to say God's temporal without the universe, but I want to deny that there's any metrication or measurements of time that could possibly take place before the universe. So it really is the case that I, I don't think you could, I think it's literally impossible for God to have an age. I, mean, I can say that God has existed with a universe for 14 billion years, give or take a billion years, but how old is God? I don't know. Doesn't have a birthday. That makes sense. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the analogy stuff that everybody affirms it. And even classical theists, not everybody affirms analogy. I remember I, for a paper for Greg Welty in, in my THM, I tried to defend like a Thomistic uh, Augustinian version of analogy. And man, he just like dominated. <laughs> like I tried to come back to him like 10 different times. being like, okay, I've reworked the argument. And every time he's like, I have no idea what you're saying. Like oh. this is literally impossible. <laughs> so I, I, I'm like analogy. Like, I guess I affirm some version of analogy because I don't know 
it depends on what you mean by analogy and depends on what you mean by university. But it seems like everybody just makes university a boogeyman and then sneaks it under the back door in their doctrine of analogy. Right. So I, I guess that's that's for another episode anyway. But it seems you what you were saying is right, that classical theists use analogy and sometimes university. Non-classical theists are using both. Uh, and I guess it just depends on who you're talking to if if this is even remotely close to accurate. It, it seems like, uh, as we've mentioned, I guess, throughout this, it's just this really big coarse-grained claim that's more for, like, I guess, rhetorical, like, get your base riled up than it is for giving accurate representations of others, which I think, at least on the pod, on this podcast, we try to encourage critical thinking and encourage people who think like us, don't think like us, and think really weird stuff on here and talk about it and just be, like, cool with each other. That's one thing I've always loved about analytic theology is that it seems like everybody in that guild no matter what you think you're a classical theist, you are not a classical theist, you're an atheist or whatever. Everybody's really cool with each other. I know. They're like, yeah, I, I completely disagree with you. And I'm going to like write a big paper a bit against you. But like, we're going to be friends and go hang out afterwards. That doesn't seem to be the case with a lot of niche religious cultures where it's like literally like you're attacking my family by saying these things against my view of God. And it like gets like really personal, really fast. And that's one, I guess, one thing I just like about analytic theology. It seems like we can be friends. We can hang out. We can talk. We can see where we agree, where we disagree. Um, And this type of rhetoric does not encourage that, in my opinion. I don't think it does either. It's definitely fun. I mean, we can't deny that because, like, there's a reason why people listen to Phaser and, and, and Hart because it's fun. But at the end of the day, I'm like, well, maybe we should be a bit more charitable. To be completely honest, I have never read anything from David Bentley Hart, but I see his stuff shared all the time and people are freaking out. So take that for what it's worth. (laughs) Another claim uh, is that on relational theism, and again, I guess it's going to depend on how we actually define that label, but um, that God needs the world to be himself, to be like fully God. So how, how would you respond to that claim? I think if we're talking about relational theism as it's kind of starting to become uh, formed, like someone like uh, Tom Ward just started the Center for Relational Open Theology. So it's kind of like, um, it's not necessarily process theism, but it's something that kind of, uh, some of the claims from within process theology are kind of being built into this new relational theism. And I think if we're looking at that, then maybe, yeah, because someone like Tom Ward is going to say that God it, you know, cannot exist without the universe. Because on a word's view, like God's love entails that God must create some sort of universe. Otherwise, God would just would not be a loving being. So I think if you're just looking at just the label of relational theism, then I think that could be really accurate. But if you're talking about all non-classical models of God, then the claim is going to be false. But again, yeah, if you're looking at just relational theism, that seems like that is the view. Yeah. So here's another claim you can respond to is it right to say that that god is not relational because god is not a creature yeah i think that's interesting so i i'm i want to hear your take on that i yeah because i i see this a lot and i i I find it a really weird like modern line of argumentation so like when the classical christian tradition first developed the claim that god is not really related to the universe they were responding to some very serious objections against timelessness and immutability and simplicity so someone like Augustine saw that if God created the universe out of nothing, then God would begin to become the creator. He would begin to be the Lord of creation. 
And then that would mean that God would acquire accidental properties like being the creator of the universe and, and being the Lord of the universe. And well, if God's going to be timeless and immutable, then God cannot acquire a new property. And if God simply cannot have any accidental properties. So Augustine's like, oh, gosh, like, capale. well, you might not have said that because he would be speaking Latin and not Italian. But, you know, he'd be like, what do I do with this objection? You know? And so Augustine's like, oh, you know, I know what I'll do. Like, I'll just deny that God's really related to the universe. Uh, and then I can avoid saying God's got all these accidental properties. So when Augustine does that, like, it's a really ad hoc move because it's in response to like an objection. And then the claim is later developed by Boethius, Peter Lombard, Aquinas, Scotus. I mean, a lot of these people uh, affirm this view. It's not affirmed by all classical theists, though, because Anselm never mentions the the no real relations doctrine. And then a contemporary Anselmian like Catherine Rogers just says that Christians have to reject the no real relations doctrine because she thinks it's just nuts. She's like, you cannot make any sense of the claim that God is loving or omniscient or omnipresent if, if that's the case. So uh, I don't know. Um, what I would like to see is someone successfully argue from the mere fact that God is not a creature to the claim that he cannot really be related to the universe. And I've seen contemporary theologians like Kevin Van Hooser like claim or assert that God can't do can't be related to the universe because he's not a creature. But I can't find any cogent argument that accompanies these assertions. I usually just see a lot of question begging, a lot of bold assertions, some yeah. really bad misunderstandings of like the metaphysics of relations. But I would like to see a, like a cogent argument for this instead of just an ad hoc kind of response to an objection. Dude, you, you know, the metaphysics of relations piece, I, I've got a paper I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. And it seems like everyone I read, they just have no clue what relations are or how they work. Mm. It's a it's a and, weird, tricky area. Yeah. And it creates all sorts of problems and, uh, and other aspects of your theology because you're just like assuming these different facts about what a relation is. I mean, you know, we want to deny all relations of God, but there's a lot of people who say, well, relations, I mean, they don't even like really exist in any right. ontological sense. Mm-hmm. So for me to affirm that there is a relation may not really be affirming what you're saying is a problem, mm-hmm. but I guess that's for another piece. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to, before we wrap up, ask you a question about worship because as Christians, like this is something that we should obviously be um, really concerned about. And um, you know, cause worshiping God is, you know, a really important deal. So can a, a non-classical God be worthy of worship uh, or save us from hell? I mean, that's a huge question. So what, what would you say to that? And I think I want to just mention the reason we're bringing that up is because in that interview, Carter's, I guess, posed with the question uh, that's basically saying, is the classical, the God of classical theism unapproachable, unknowable and unrelatable? And Carter's like, well, I'm going to just turn the tables and say, you know, if you affirm a non-classical God, he's not worthy of worship. And he says here, I guess, if you want an idol in your own image, you can have a cuddly little God who is your best friend forever, but that kind of God cannot save you from hell, cannot comfort you in the presence of death and cannot overcome the evil all around you. That's pretty strong, bold statement about non all versions of not classical theism. So, I'll let you go with that. Just wanted to give a little context for right, why yeah. that question is being brought up. Yeah, because when I saw that in the in the in the in the essay, we're talking about like that. Just kind of yeah, it just, just really stood out to me. So I guess I'll probably say like what exactly I take to be worthy of worship. So I, I think a being is worthy of worship if it's the greatest metaphysically possible being. So what like whatever it means to be perfect, and that whatever that perfect being is, that's the thing that's worthy of worship. 
And so I take this to be the claim that like God, whatever God is, is a being that has all of the great making properties or perfections, and that God's the source of all the contingent expressions of these great making properties we find in creatures. And then we have all these debates about which great making properties are possible and coherent and which properties God actually has. But I think that whichever model of God turns out to be true, like that's going to correctly identify what the great making properties are that God has. And so given that, then I think it's plausible to say that all models of God are affirming a being that is worthy of worship insofar as they're attempting to articulate what the greatest possible being is like. But what about hell, though? The hell stuff? Well, it, it depends. So if you're looking at like a modified or neoclassical uh, theistic view, I think they can easily affirm that God can save us from hell. Because some of these people who affirm this kind of model, they're Calvinists. Some of them are Molinists. Uh, so that's a really strong doctrine of providence and foreknowledge. So they, I don't see any reason for thinking that they can't affirm that God can save us from hell. When I look at open theists, um, you know, I don't know. Sometimes they say that God takes a lot of risks when he's creating the universe. Uh but they really kind of downplay how much risk is involved. So they usually say that, is it possible that God could fail to, to save us from hell? Eh, maybe it's theoretically possible, but it's practically impossible because it's so like tiny and minuscule the possibility is negligible. But then someone like Greg Boyd, who's also an open theist, says, no, that's not possible at all. God just cuts off all those possible timelines where God fails. But then when I look at some relational theology and some process theism, Mid, then this is where I start to kind of go, maybe Carter's onto something here. Because some of these process views, God can't guarantee anything. I mean, he can try to woo you uh, towards salvation, but that's it. Uh, they'll talk about how like resourceful God is. And they might even say the probability that God would fail to save anyone is quite low. But it's a, I think it's a very real risk on some of these uh, relational and, and uh, process views. That's good. That I think that's helpful because uh, I, I guess, you know, we've been kind of railing on him a little bit, mm-hmm. but I guess the, there is some truth to some of the stuff he's saying. Well, right. The problem is he's universalizing it in a way that's not applicable to all sorts of vast swaths of, I guess, people. So mm-hmm. that, that's the helpful part in a, yeah. lot of, in a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So one last question from this article that I wanted to touch on that I've seen a lot of people make this claim and I can tell you by knowing them or looking at them, I'm like, you haven't read a single social Trinitarian in your life. So I'm not sure how you can make that claim. So basically Carter makes the claim that Nicene theology is monotheistic, but social Trinitarianism is tritheistic and therefore polytheism. He and he goes on. So I guess that's the big claim is social Trinitarian is polytheistic, tritheistic, and it's heretical. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've read William Hasker's Tri Personal God. He is trying to follow the ecumenical creeds in how he works it out. And he's arguing, saying, look, social Trinitarianism actually makes sense of this. And I guess I think the reason you would say social Trinitarianism is polytheistic or whatever is because you're saying, unless you affirm the strictest form of, of simplicity, you are a polytheist Mm -hmm. period. And it's impossible to be a monotheist without it. But then I, I think if you go that route, you end up denying any form of distinction in the Godhead and you're a modalist. Mm -hmm. So maybe is social Trinitarianism necessarily polytheistic? And maybe it does go down to simplicity. I don't know. So you can walk me through that. Yeah, I, we can talk about simplicity and Trinity, I think, another day, because I do think I can give an argument for why it entails modalism. But when I look at 
when I look at social Trinitarianism as a whole, I think it depends who you're looking at. So when I look at some different 20th century theologians, they talk about the divine community being engaged in some kind of parachoretic dance. Um, I'm really strongly tempted to be like, yeah, that's that's just that's tritheism. Uh, so there are some people who be like, yeah. And then like, uh, I don't know if you've ever found Richard Swinburne's like really, really early work on the Trinity. He says yeah. things like God one says to God two. <laughs> and they're like, like oh, it sounds a bit tritheistic. And, you know, and Swinburne's written a lot of stuff later on to try to, you know, to overcome that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But when you mentioned, yeah, like someone like Hasker or William Lane Craig or Tom McCall or like Keith Yandel, like, I mean, these people are trying really hard to present very, very careful models of, you know, like trying to capture this claim that there's homoousius between the, the three divine persons. And so this, like, what really makes social Trinitarianism, like, a thing is this claim that there's, like, a person is a center of consciousness with a will. So when I look at God, I'm going to say, well, three persons, there's going to be three centers of consciousness with three wills, which is different from Latin views, so-called Latin views, which claim how many uh, persons are there? Three. How many minds and wills? One mind, one will. Yeah. And you're like, how many? well, hang on. One mind and one will? Well, okay. Well, what about Christ? And you're like, well, in Christ, there are two minds and two wills and one person. And you're like... I don't know if you know how to count minds and wills or persons, like what's going on. <laughs> so there's a lot of craziness happening here. But um, again, I think if you look at someone like Hasker or some of these others, I don't see how to really get the claim to stick that they are being uh, tritheistic, especially since they've given some arguments that people like uh, Gregory Nazianzus and Duns Scotus seem to affirm something that's similar to their view. And so their view is something like this. They're going to say that divine persons are existentially, essentially, and symmetrically dependent upon one another such as logically impossible for the divine persons to exist apart from each other. And that's a really strong kind of like, unity there that, you, that someone like Nazianzus or Scott is going to say, that's enough to count as one being or one God. So I think, yeah, you're going to have to try to develop an argument against those views and say it entails tritheism. I don't think you can just kind of assert it. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I guess in all of this, Part of the reason we want to talk about this as well, I guess it's, it's fun for us to talk about these topics and to think through them. Second, you know, we've mentioned how I think a lot of these claims are like over the top, unhelpful. Um, but I guess to the point, you know, it's true that obviously these things get us naturally riled up because mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about the most important being in, in or outside the universe, however you want to say it, um, and the, the person we worship. So obviously we want to be careful uh, with how we understand him and, and how, what we say of him. But in, in the same way, I think if we want to love our neighbors and if we want to do to represent truth accurately, we have to, to give proper explanations of alternative viewpoints. And that's where I think it's lacking. And I think you've talked through that. So is there anything else you wanted to talk to on this? I think a lot of our listeners are probably gonna be like, man, Jordan is just like, you know, anti Craig Carter or, or anti classical theism or something. And I, and I would say, well, have you listened to me on other podcasts? Uh, have you read any of my work? I, I well, we have heard you on other podcasts talk about Carter. So maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe that one's like an example. But, uh, yeah. but I, I like, I think me and Craig are kindred spirits in a lot of ways. I just, I have problems with some of his, over-the-top claims. And I've told him that to his face through a screen. So <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll, I'll let you have the final word on anything you want to sum up with. I guess okay, since for me, because like theology is the study of God. 
And so in my mind, I'm like, this is like the big work to be done here. And it needs a lot of attention. It needs a lot of very careful considerations and very careful distinctions. And so in my mind, what I want to do is I want to lay out here are all the possible models of God and these nice fine grained details, and then start figuring out arguments for and against each of them. And that is going to be a much larger project. It's a very difficult task, but I think it's part of the task of what it means to do theology. So if we're going to start talking about God in this sort of way uh, to do like good theology, we have to be much more careful with our distinctions, and much more careful with the categories we're coming up with. Otherwise, uh, I don't know. I think we might be wasting our time. Yeah. Brandon, did you want to have anything you wanted to add? Because I think for the most part, I've kind of owned the, the interview on this one. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I thought it was a good place to continue the conversation and maybe Carter can come on and respond if he'd like to, and we can keep it going. Cool. All right. Well, uh, you know, as always, we recommend you guys check out all of Dr. Mullen's work. I think he uh, writes in a um, uncommonly lucid way. So there's a lot of academic theology work that's out there. That's really hard to read. His is not like that. And I think no matter what you think, you are going to benefit from it. You're going to learn. You're going to be challenged. Uh, at least for me, I- I've learned more and been challenged more from people I disagree with or people who have different takes on things, different arguments. And I think you're going to find a lot of really interesting and helpful stuff in his work. So I'm really looking forward to your new book, God and Emotions, coming out. We will definitely uh, put that out when it comes out to let all of our listeners know to go check that out. As well as you've got like 50,000 papers that come out a week. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if anybody can keep up with all of them, but I think you should go check those out. You know, I've got, I've read your one in religious studies on the omni-subjectivity, which I think is fascinating piece and some other ones that have come out that I need to check out. So we encourage all our listeners to go get those. Um, and I guess go read the stuff on Credo Magazine on Craig Carter. I mean, go, go look at it for yourself. See what you think. Uh, I mean, that's part of the whole thing about the podcast is, you know, we're, you know, the confessional, but we want to have legitimate, open, honest discussions and debates to help stretch each other to think and to grow in, I guess, Christian virtues. So I think charity is a Christian virtue. And I think if you want to grow in that, you have to actually talk to people outside of your silo and be cool with them. Anyway, uh, for those who've been listening, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. And well, we look forward to hearing from you guys. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.